1: Good evening. Welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele in New York. It's great to be back. Today the trains are running, so yeah, I can be here, which is fantastic. Tomorrow, not so much. We're going to talk about strikes in in a few minutes' time. Alex, oh my lord, we are seeing something of a sell-off developing. The euro stocks today down by 3.5%. Most continental equity markets are down by a similar amount. The FTSE is getting away with it a little bit uh, because of the fact that oil stocks are relatively outperforming. Mm -hmm. The Bank of England was boring today. The ECB wasn't.
0: Um, we're down 100 points on, on the S&P. Now, some are saying that might be a delayed reaction to the ECB, but I got to be honest with you, I don't know if I buy that because we really picked up steam uh, after the ECB. And you're taking a look at the front end of the yield curve here in the U.S., just up three basis points. If we're really freaking out about a hawkish Fed, we'd be up a lot more than that. I don't know. I think this is definitely the ECB taking the hawkish reins and like running with it.
1: No kidding. I, the The complete kind of about-face by Christine Lagarde today was bewildering. And there's been subsequent Bloomberg reporting that seems to suggest that actually there were there were many on the governing council that we're talking about not a 50 basis point hike today, but a 75 basis Mm -hmm, point hike mm -hmm. today. Uh, So absolutely amazing. In terms of the bond market, we're getting a big reaction there as well. Italy in particular, uh, you're seeing Italian yields rising by 27 basis points. You've now got the Italian tenure at 4.13. There's some suggestion now that the ECB may be hiking up towards 4%. That would put BTPs well north of where they are now and potentially start to maybe cause problems with the fabric of the ECB yeah. the german bund spread could become quite problematic
0: yeah and unless the ecb doesn't care that much about financial stability anymore they're willing to look past it
1: yeah we're going to find out in just a moment. Got to, we're going to discuss this a lot. Marcus Ashworth this is lined up. We need to talk about the ECB. We need to talk about the Fed. We need to talk about the Bank of England. Yana Rando is going to join us as well from Frankfurt to give, her, her, give us her take uh, on what we saw uh, with that uh, Christine Lagarde press conference. Let's uh, pull it all together now. Talk about the headlines. Here's Charlie Pellet.
4: Hi. Thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Central banks uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, certainly very much in focus. The Bank of England raising rates for a ninth time in a row to a 14-year high of 3.5%, pressing ahead with efforts to tame sky-high inflation. The nine-member Monetary Policy Committee split three ways on the decision as officials tried to balance the risk of inflation getting entrenched against squeezing too hard on growth just as the economy enters a recession. The European Central Bank increased interest rates by half a point with President Christine Lagarde telling investors to prepare for a long-running campaign of similar moves to quell the worst inflation in the history of the euro. In other news, Citigroup has told employees they can work from anywhere for the final two weeks of the year as CEO Jane Frazier bucks a trend among rivals to get office workers back to their desks full-time. And baggage handlers at Heathrow will go ahead with a strike tomorrow and the weekend with additional industrial action planned over New Year's Eve that threatens to disrupt one of Europe's most important aviation hubs. The Unite Union says more than 400 workers at Heathrow terminals, two, three, and four, will walk out following a, quote, miserable pay offer from their employer. That is the latest from the News Desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Charlie Pellet. We're going to come back and talk about those strikes in just a moment uh, because it's going to have a significant impact on the UK economy and we need to figure out how we're going to be factoring that in. But let's turn first of all to what has been happening with the central bank narrative today. The Fed last night sounded hawkish. The market didn't believe it. uh, As a result of which we didn't see much of a market reaction. Today though uh, we have certainly seen a reaction. The ECB's Christine Lagarde sounding significantly more hawkish than anybody had anticipated. and By contrast the Bank of England sounded boring. Marcus Ashworth joins us now to discuss all of this. Marcus, how would you compare and contrast these three central banks and the relative impact that they have had?
5: Um, Well, I think you can safely say the Bank of England is just in lockstep with the Fed. Uh, And I think I'm even more confident that we will get another 25 basis points from the Bank of England and that'll be it. Uh, I think the Fed may possibly be doing something similar, maybe a little bit more, who knows. But the ECB is paying the price of being late to the party and having to carry on hiking when everyone else is going to go on pause. Um, and you can quite clearly see from the uh, infamous sources that come out afterwards, and you get the real picture, that uh, she nearly lost uh, the governing council, um, I think, and uh, Isabel Schneibel's view is clearly dominating, along with uh, Nigel from the Bundesbank and and possibly you know quite a few other of the more. So, Marcus,
0: why? Why did the ECB feel like they need to go so hard i i was actually reading something from td securities and don't laugh when i say this but they were saying like hey maybe the winter crisis with gas won't be that bad um or hey maybe they have confidence in their anti-fragmentation tools
5: ha <laughs> oh, that is funny um <laughs> if we knew if we knew what they were um someone still has yet to explain to me and Nagard certainly has avoided to explain to us what on earth they are but uh with regard to there's one word inflation uh, and uh up, upgrading of their forecasts uh, significantly uh, particularly you know the core numbers out of 2025 are quite a bit above their target they've only got you know rates to, to, at two percent they've got to do more um and they've got to keep on doing it because they were late didn't, didn't start hiking till July um the question for me though is how can they place all the bonds they have to place next year we've got the best part of 300 billion bunts alone uh because who's going to buy these these uh European government bonds next year because it's not going to be the Domestic banks, because the Teltro being collapsed, they've got less, far less power to do it. We know the Japanese continue to sell um, and therefore we're left. The ECB itself is actually now doing quantitative tightening. So you know, it leaves a very sort of smaller uh, client base for, for the, all this debt to be sold at the same time as they can continue to be hiking interest rates. It's, it's not how, how big
1: nice. is the risk of a policy mistake here then?
5: Oof. Well, I mean, their forecast for uh, growth next year at zero point five percent is what I would call brave, ambitious, and highly unlikely. I think they're going to push themselves over the edge into recession if they're not already. And the chance, therefore, they may make a policy stick is quite is quite high. For the moment, though, they have no option. They have to keep on hiking. They left it to too little too late and they've got to get over it
0: so if they do wind up seeing divergence though with say the fed and the boe for example what kind of volatility does that inject into the market and like where do we see that play out the most i'm assuming it's going to come in btps and bunds what, what do you see evolving yeah. there
5: yeah exactly that i think that's the weak point um you know the only good news for btps is there's a lot of supply coming in germany so yeah the relative difference isn't quite as big as it used to be um, but I think as bonds push higher in yield, which they're looking to never be going to, it will only push BTP yields high, even further and wider. And that is, is something which we get the tipping point again. We get to close to 5% where the wheels start to come off for the uh, debt dynamic sustainability for Italy. Uh, and, you know, un- unpleasant, nasty things are going to happen.
1: Why do you think the Bank of England is getting near to the end of the uh, of its programme of hiking? The labour market in this country continues to be problematic and remains very, very tight. Uh, there have been hints from various senior officials at the Bank of England that they're worried that inflation expectations are becoming unanchored. The labour market appears to be in this country and over in the United States impervious to policy action. And I'm just I, there. there's various different reasons for it. But it appears to be the reality, and if that is the case, then that's going to embed inflation. That has the potential to embed inflation into the system for much longer.
5: Yeah, true, but I mean the point is, you know, interest rate hikes sort of fifty basis points or whatever aren't going to get kick people out of jobs, which is seemingly what they want. You know, companies are going to go bankrupt on quite a large number uh, to force, uh, you know, really quite a sizable change in and turning the the labour market. Unfortunately, when it turns, it's already too late. um But you know, looking at the UK, I mean, there there are five million people sitting there not working, you know, who are capable of working in theory. So, I mean, the labour stats, particularly in the UK, because that's one of our places, are useless. And they've been useless for quite a long while. We had no idea how many people left uh, through Covid, but no idea how many people come back. It, it's all up in the air as far as relying on statistics to try and look in the rearview mirror to guide policy is at the best useless the only thing i can say is it means probably therefore any recession which we're in is going to be relatively mild and therefore eg i don't think house prices go down as much but you know beyond that i think trying to rely on labour stats is is a very dangerous thing because they're always lagging and i think very inaccurate
1: Let's talk about the Labour story from a different angle right now. UK um, nurses have gone on strike today. We're going to see ambulance workers going on strike tomorrow. It looks as if a baggage handler strike at Heathrow has been called off. Uh, I think the Eurostar strike has, has also been called off. But clearly, we are in what appears to be potentially a kind of winter of discontent scenario. The rail strike's not happening today. But they're going to be back on tomorrow. And it looks like we're going to see more of those as well. Eamon Farah joining us now. He is our Bloomberg Strikes reporter. Um, he is the man to talk to about all of this. Th- this is the week where it all appears to be coming together. But I'm getting the sense as well that the government is looking to treat some of these different strikes differently. I, th- there is a peer, uh, uh, the Daily Mail um, front page today was maybe indicative of this. There appears to be maybe a willingness to settle with maybe the nurses but not with the rail rail, rail rail workers yeah
6: I mean it's maybe about public opinion you know when we did uh, we had a poll that came out on Tuesday that showed that rail workers were only seeing about 35% support amongst the public whilst for nurses it's more than 50 mm. um, and there are I think already two um, Tory MPs who have come forward and said that the nurses should get what they're asking for you know this pay rise so yep. you know the frontline workers the emergency workers maybe they you know need more of us are more likely to get a pay rise than the rail workers just because of the position they're in
0: can you, can you just break down what each individual, individual union wants like I know the nurses. Is they're looking what Mm -hmm. 19% pay raise? Like what? What are the distinctions?
6: So, uh, yeah, the nurses they are looking for a, what they're saying a 5% above kind of RPI, so about 19%, um, which is, you know, quite high. They've only been offered about 4% um, from the NHS pay review. Um, and the rail, you know, it's maybe looking more in the 10 plus percent. You know, we have to say that today the TSSA accepted an offer from Network Rail. but yeah. The RMT is the only union now that's holding out on that offer and still opposing it. There are talks ongoing, but, you know, that that's where we are. And across industries, you know, even today, you know, the baggage handlers, um, they got a, an offer of 10.5% that is now going to be put to, to a vote as well. So, that's kind of the range on some sides, but the nurses, it is quite high at, at
1: 19%. What is the sense of the impact that this is having on the economy? We're starting to see, I, I've seen a, a number of numbers being sort of posted this week by, by various think tanks about the effect that this, has, this is having on the economy.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's it's definitely, you know, the insecurity around all this. You know, in London, you know, I'm sure you can see the offices are quite empty. Restaurants are empty. You know, when strikes happen, especially people who commute in, they just can't come in. Restaurants are feeling the brunt of it. We're seeing bookings you know, plummeting. And, of course, there's the cold as well that's, that's contributing to that. But it's definitely taking a toll in, in London especially.
0: So, Marcus, back to you on this. How does the BOE manage all of this? Like a, a 19% pay raise? Like that can't be good. But on the other hand, like... How do you not raise wages when it comes to inflation anyway?
5: Yeah, I, I don't think the Royal College of Nurses have done themselves any favours by going that high. and I think that's that's made the government's case that there is such a thing uh, easier for them. But as far as the government is concerned, I mean, they did point quite, you know, carefully to the 6.9% rise in private sector wage growth, mm-hmm. which is more that they sort of focus on um, because that's sort of the stuff they want to influence, really. Uh, the government in theory is supposed to look after and kick of itself though obviously is having some troubles at the moment so i, I don't think they they look at it uh with, with real fear at the moment they are conscious of it it's the one thing that might derail their so we say only doing a further 25 basis points if really this does consider to be persistent which it does have you know clearly quite high at 6.9 percent inflation is higher than that. it will come down pretty sharply we know we can expect it to the second half of this year is going to drop almost like a stone and i, and I think by next year we'll, we're going to be they're already forecasting it to be below their two percent target and that's their their problem i think they realize that the, the amount of hiking they've already done and qt both active and passive that they've probably done quite a lot hence why two of the members actually voted for no move which means that Next time around, they could start doing, even voting for rate cuts. So there's a big split on the MPC um, and it's really the Labour stats which is, which is causing the problems.
1: Hey man just to wrap things up with you, is this as bad as it gets this week?
6: I think it's, it's pretty bad this week, I mean, especially the rail strikes. That's the one that has the most effect on people's lives. You know, the thing with the NHS, you know, the nurses have already said that they might be calling for more strikes in January if, you know, the government doesn't start wanting to talk about pay. So we could see those nurse strikes expand. Right now it's not across all trusts. It's only across about 54 of the areas. It could be across many more areas of the UK and the ambulances, as you said, tomorrow. So I think the health the healthcare side could get worse. Uh, the transport could be as bad in, in January as well.
0: So you're not done yet, Guy. This is this is that's that's basically the message.
1: That's the message I'm getting here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Maybe you'll have some days where it'll be better, and then other days when it's not. Um, Really great reporting, you guys. Uh, Marcus, just quick, quick, quick question here. Um, In terms of the asset prices, is the market accurately priced for what the BOE is going to run into?
5: Oh, it's a searching question. I think gilt (laughs) yields are too low, uh, and I think uh, we're seeing the sharp moves today in Europe is something which uh, at some point the UK is going to catch up with. So, But there's some strange things going on because the, the, the Bank of England sold back a lot of bonds that it bought uh, you yeah. know, in the crisis in September, October. So you know, it's a bit odd looking at gilt yields. But net-net, I think um, they will probably do less badly than uh, European government bonds, but they're still going to rise in yield, therefore, down in price. And as far as the FTSE is concerned, uh, again, I think it's just noodling around the 7,400, 500 price. So I, I'm not... I've got a particularly strong view on um, yep. UK assets. I think the pound is also going to wallow a bit as well, though.
1: OK, Marcus, Eamon, thank you both very much indeed. We greatly appreciate it. Up next, we're going to get more analysis on what is happening, particularly with the ECB. Uh, Jana Randau is going to join us from Frankfurt to give us her expert assessment of why we got that incredibly hawkish press conference from Christy Ligard. That's next. This is Bloomberg.
3: This is The Cable, with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele, on Bloomberg
4: Radio. We judge that interest rates, we still have to rise significantly, at a steady pace, to reach levels that are sufficiently restrictive to ensure a timely return of inflation to our 2% medium-term target. Our future policy rate decisions will continue to be data-dependent, and follow a meeting-by-meeting meeting
3: approach.
0: That was Christine Lagarde at her epic a press conference, saying that she was at a dependent, but really it felt like the ECB was being very clear in how they were forecasting. More 50-basis point hikes for longer and a higher terminal rate and it was obvious to expect those big hikes I want to get more analysis here because we saw yields flying higher the euro seemed confused uh, at one point it did rally and then it dropped like a stone so we want to get more insight as to how we interpret all of this going forward yana Randau is bloomberg's ecb editor and she joins us now um yana why do you think christine lagarde was this hawkish
7: Well, first of all, um, the uh, inflation projections, right? Um, So the ECB published new uh, forecasts and they show inflation above the 2% target all the way into 2025 and now we know that forecasts this far out are not um, all that reliable um, but it clearly shows that um, what markets are pricing which is basically what is baked in those forecasts is not enough and that was the message from Christine Lagarde today um, to investors to traders saying what you are pricing what you expect us to do is not enough we are determined to bring down inflation so what she said is um, ba- uh, more interest rate hikes of 50 basis points definitely in February probably in March and then we will see so very hawkish uh, of a message uh, which uh, you have to also see in context of the smaller uh, of the slowdown interest rate hikes right so we got a half point hike today that was slower than the 75 basis points move uh, point uh, moves that we saw in September and October it was very much in line with what other central banks were doing uh, over the past 24 hours, um, but clearly a slowdown uh, in the hiking pace uh, could have uh, be perceived by uh, by observers, by watchers, as you know, a pivot, as a slowdown. And she was very clear, saying, "We are not pivoting. We are not done. And quite, you know, quite frankly, we are pushing ahead."
1: How's it going on the governing council? Do you think what's going on below the surface?
7: Well, it's not all that uh, that much of a party, you know. Um, so that we know that we know that uh, more than a third of governors would have actually been in favor of a f- of, of a stronger hike. Um, they wanted 75 basis points, and we know who the hawks are. Um, so we can all make some educated guesses there. Um, but what ultimately uh, brought them around was the strong language on interest rates going forward, on the fact that the ECB is not going to be done in February after another say 25 basis point hike uh, and it's probably not even going to be done in the first quarter Um, so that commitment that rate hikes will and and significant rate hikes will continue for longer um, made them compromise and also of course uh, the start of quantitative tightening in the first quarter in march um, that was uh, if you ask me a lot more detail than i uh, would have expected going into the meeting Mm -hmm. Um, so that is also a win for the hawks. now um The runoff is going to be capped at 15 billion uh, a month on average until the end of the second quarter and being uh, reassessed probably in June. Um, But the pure fact that this is starting now and uh, that they can test the waters, they can see how the market reacts um, and that commitment on on rate hikes going forward is probably what what convinced a lot of those hawks to say, OK, fine, we're going to support that half point hike today.
0: What also really strikes me, too, is the growth forecast for next year of uh, half a percentage point, which is what the Fed has in for the U.S., too, which seems bananas to me. So does the five tenths of one percent imply like the super soft landing from the ECB or like de facto does it mean they can't actually hike as much?
7: I mean, a lot of people would probably say it's a bit of wishful thinking, um, but we if you say look bananas at here. <laughs> anyway. But you know, whatever, it's the same. <laughs> um, so, so what what the ECB sees is a contraction in uh, economic output of 0.2 percent in the fourth quarter, and 0.1 percent in the first quarter, and growth after that. So, a, an incredibly shallow recession, um, which uh, a lot of a lot of economists that you know uh, we speak to say, um, you know, that recession. It, nobody uh- sees the economy falling off a cliff, but they do see a somewhat stronger contraction. Um, some of them, or in fact most of them, actually even see uh, you know a contraction in in uh, GDP for the whole year of 2023. So the ECB is on the optimistic side, and uh, of course um, they're taking into yeah. account uh, fiscal measures uh, helping um, households uh, with energy bills uh, that will prop up spending. So uh, we'll we'll have to see. We'll have to see how we get through the winter. And and you know how we come out on the other side, and uh, then we'll we'll all be a bit smarter.
1: <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I hope you're right. I'd love to be a bit smarter. Jana, um talk to me about what the view from Italy is of all of this. Um the implicit message today was rates are going significantly north of of three three per cent, which is where the market was previously, maybe up towards four per cent. Um BTPs are already trading at four percent. Can can the Italian market take much more of this? And do we think that the ECB's anti-fragmentation tools are going to be able to cope?
7: Well, clearly, the Italian government isn't happy, and we've seen a little bit of that uh, already. Um, but, but looking at the market side... Um, so far, um, like before going into the meeting, um, Italian government bonds have been incredibly stable, and and uh, as long as um, the government sticks to being responsible on fiscal policy, um, does its homework, uh, implements the reforms, uh, uh, you know, outlined, there is a good chance uh, that that markets will actually also uh, calm down after today. Um, That's not to say there isn't risk. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, Italy is the weak spot, and we all know that. Um, But also, um, the ECB has been very uh, determined in saying, look, um, there is a backstop. There are actually two backstops um, that that are in place that are available um, should should things go south. And one, of course, is, uh, you know, the flexible reinvestment policy yep. they have under the pandemic program. Um, they have the TPI. So there is there is a backstop. And I would say, um, you know, I wouldn't worry too much. Uh, there's a lot of noise probably going to come, but um, <laughs> yeah, w- we'll get through this.
1: Jana, <laughs> great stuff as ever. We've appreciated the fantastic coverage today. Thank you to you and your team. This is Bloomberg.
3: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB digital radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. He's actually joining me this time, you guys, I promise. Um, (laughs) The S&P is off by about 2.5%. I mean, it is getting really ugly out there. We are below the 100-day moving average. We're approaching the 50-day moving average. And a lot of debate as to what is causing it. Is it the Fed? Is it the ECB? You could also make an argument that this is just book squaring till the end of the year. We're going to get into that in a moment. Uh, We spoke to Greg Jensen of Bridgewater. He had some really fascinating insights. I mean, he made me feel a little depressed after the interview, but. You'll see what he says. Um, that's the quick snapshot here as we're halfway through the trading day in the U.S. Let's get some other stories with Charlie Pellet.
4: Hi, thank you very much. Going back to the Bank of England because BOE said Britain's inflation rate may already have peaked and that two of its policymakers believe interest rates are already high enough to drain pricing pressure. The U.K. Central Bank lifted its benchmark lending rate A half point this morning to three and a half percent, the ninth increase in a year aimed at taming soaring prices and the highest since the start of the global financial crisis in 2008. National Grid will be running a test of one of the country's coal-fired power generators tomorrow that is being kept in reserve to boost supplies this winter. While mostly phased out already, plants burning the most polluting fossil fuel could serve as a vital source of backup power this winter to make up for potential shortfalls in wind or interconnected capacity as the region struggles with its worst energy crisis in decades. Baggage handlers at London Heathrow Airport have called off a strike that was planned for tomorrow after their union got an improved pay offer from their employer. The U-turn means a three-day walkout that was set to begin at 4 a.m. Friday will not take place as the Unite Union ballots members on the new offer. Financial details were not disclosed. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York.
0: All right, Charlie Pellet. thank you very much. So yesterday, uh, uh, Guy, we were talking about the conversation of which is going to be more hawkish, the Fed or the ECB. I was kind of leaning towards the ECB. It looks like it was the ECB what do you think is moving the markets here in the U.S.? Fed or ECB?
1: I think it's the ECB. I agree. And that's weird because that doesn't normally happen. But the market ignored the Fed yesterday. In fact, it's slightly loosened financial conditions. And boom, in comes Christine Lagarde. And oh, my Lord.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, maybe a little bit of softness in equity, sure. But I just really question why that front end uh, didn't really move that much either. And if, you know, this year was the year that central banks started raising rates. It feels like next year is going to be when the economy starts to feel the effect of those central banks raising rates.
1: Yeah. uh, And that was the point that Greg Jensen was making to us from Bridgewater. He's the co-CIO a little bit earlier on. He feels that next year you're going to see that impact rolling through. But my question on the back of that, Alex, is but what happens if central banks keep tightening Mm. and and continue to tighten or at least hold rates at elevated levels through 2023. That means that we could be looking for this downturn to last into 2024, maybe mm-hmm. even longer.
0: Yeah. And sort of if the puts are really gone, central bank puts are really gone. Where does that leave us? And that, and that's, as you mentioned, uh, Greg Jensen, he's the co-CIO over at Bridgewater Associates. We spoke to him earlier in our television program um, and we talked about, should we forget about the Fed and just listen to the ECB? And he had a pretty grim outlook as to what he's expecting for the next few years.
2: Well, I wouldn't say that. I'd say there's more similarity here um, in that central banks are in a much different position than they've been entering the last four recessions um, in that they help, their tools are very limited. They've got to simultaneously balance the infla- preventing inflation to get, getting entrenched with, what's, um, with the growth story that in Europe in particular is already weakened. In the U.S. it's beginning to weaken. And basically, that's what we think the story of 2023 is going to be, which is the lagged effect of what happened in 2022. So if you turn back the clock to 2021, when we're sitting here in December, Mm -hmm. there were a few things everybody was talking about, which is that inflation is going to be transitory. Nobody was expecting much tightening. And the whole effect of the fiscal policy and the very easy monetary policy and the, the things that came subsequently in the first and second quarter weren't priced in, even though everybody was talking about them here, there's a lot of talk about recession, but very little recession priced in. And so we think whether it's the next leg down, particularly in profits, the more of a dollar squeeze um, as the effect of the tightening, particularly in the U.S., plays through different markets in the world. Um, Those are the big things that we think are not fully priced. So the market priced in, the tightening as it occurred over the last year, the movement in real interest rates drove every market. We think in the next year, it's going to be the effect of all of those things can you give me a sense of the magnitude
1: of that repricing that we're going to see
2: yeah look we think it's this is one of the biggest differences we've seen between what our systematic process that we've built up over the last 40 years measures on the impact on profits and the impact on currencies um that we've that we've ever seen so one of the biggest one once in 15 year kind of pressures so i think you're going to see relatively large moves as you shift from a world that's fully focused and on the Fed to one that's focused on recession and dollar squeeze that we, we see coming into the next year.
0: So what's your playbook for that?
2: Well, I think the main things um, are to recognize the type of environment we're in. We're in a multi-year environment that's very difficult for traditional assets, stocks, and bonds. So A, being diversified outside of that. B, if you take this, we think this is particularly gonna hit in, the countries where the inflation problem was bigger and the tightening, more tightening is necessary. That's really U.S. and Europe and the U.K. Um, so there are a lot of opportunities in currencies and across the world. If you could diversify better, we think Asia is a little bit better priced and better uh, able to withstand this because they didn't have as much of an inflation shock and didn't unleash as much fiscal policy. Um, And so there's opportunities out there. But the big picture is if you were set up and you need asset prices to go up, you're in a very difficult position.
1: Yeah. Greg, you talk about, I'm just wondering about the duration of how long this is all going to last. You talk about 23 being about feeling the effects of of, of the lag from 22. But if policymakers, and we heard from Lagarde today kind of implying this, continue to tighten through 23, or at least sit at fairly elevated levels relative to recent history when it comes to rates through 23, how long is the effect of all of this going to be lasting for? Is it 24? Is it 25? How long is this down, downdraft in assets and asset valuations going to last for?
2: Yeah, what you see in these periods of higher inflation when central banks ease more slowly into the recession is they last longer and the drawdowns in assets are longer. So we'd expect kind of double the normal length of a recession because the Fed's not gonna be at your back for a long time and that's a big deal. So I'd say this is gonna be a long, likely not, I mean, the good news is the leverage in the financial system isn't that bad, so you don't have this cascading mm-hmm. effect like in 2008. Instead, mm-hmm. you have this long grind that's probably a couple of years, and um, and that asset prices, as a result, start to price that in. And until that's sort of fully priced in, and you, and the central banks are able to move towards easing, yeah. you don't you get a recovery much later. So our expectation is that you're in for a long drawdown that you haven't seen the bottom in risky assets. And that it's going to be a couple year, um, a couple year down cycle here.
1: Uh, and Alex, what he was basically talking about as well is that you're seeing the kind of the early volatility in areas. I oh, have seen it in the gilt market, you've seen it in crypto, but that mm-hmm. process is also going to work its way to the kind of the center of financial markets, and that's going to be a fairly long drawn out process as well.
0: Yeah, that didn't make me feel very good at all. No, um, his his whole description was pretty bleak too, and and he basically was like, cash is good. It's given you something. Like, why not do that? I mean, this is Bridgewater Associates, and 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 they have a really pessimistic view uh, over the next few years. And I just have to wonder too, as the leverage bubble rolls, like, where does it roll to next? Is Absolutely. it balance sheets? Is it company balance sheets? I guess? Is it central bank balance sheets?
1: Is it the consumer? I, there's all kinds of all mm-hmm. kinds of things that are gonna kind of work their way through the system over the next year or so. Um, particularly as as we heard today, as central banks keep. Keep the pressure on and keep tightening. Uh, anyway, up next, we're going to talk about luxury stocks and China.
3: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB a Digital Radio uh, we've talked a little bit about the impact that Christine Lagarde was having today on the uh, the eurozone equity market. We also need to talk about the impact China is having. Uh, really poor economic data out of China a little bit earlier on. There's also reports now being done uh, by specialists in Hong Kong looking at healthcare situations, suggesting we could see close to a million deaths as a result uh, of the reopening that we're seeing in China. Will that have an impact on the luxury sector? Well, today we saw the luxury sector in Europe under real pressure. Names like Kering down very very hard. The owner of Gucci down by 5.57%. Uh, We saw uh, analysts over at Brian Garnier talking about the fact uh, that caring is in particular exposed uh, through Gucci to China. Um, We, Alex and I, caught up uh, with Sweta Ramachandran from GAM. She's our go-to expert on luxury to get her take on all of this.
3: I think the luxury sector today definitely has been down in sympathy with a lot of other growth stocks in Europe following the ECB rate hikes and more general, generally concerns about the trajectory of rate hikes in Europe. Uh, I do think the China data is a little bit backward-looking in that it's well understood that uh, November was well before the sort of path to reopening began. Uh, and th- the shares actually reacted quite positively to early news of an eventual uh, reopening that appears to be underway, which signals a catalyst for the luxury sector in terms of demand recovering into early next year. So while this is a short-term concern, I think the bigger issue with China is the longer-term path of the reopening uh, and to what extent in 2023 that can help support, support the sector, which may be affected by slower demand in the US and Europe.
1: The note that Alex is referring to basically signals that Kering has greater exposure to China through Gucci. Is that how we should be viewing luxury names? looking through the portfolios, looking through LVMH, looking through other brands, looking at their exposure, figuring out kind of how that exposure works and then backing that into the price that we're prepared to pay. Is that going to be the name of the game next year?
3: Uh, To some extent, absolutely. I would point out that Kering has been suffering from some specific uh, Gucci-specific issues in that that brand is more reliant on a younger consumer cohort in China than perhaps uh, other brands, and it it is in some need of rejuvenation, which is why the designer who has left uh, is about to be replaced by another, and that is hopefully going to catalyze a recovery for that brand. Um, That said, China is definitely going to be uh, a key catalyst for the sector in 2023, given that there used to be a huge, component of luxury spend by Chinese nationals that, before the pandemic, was taking place outside of China as tourists uh, traveled, especially in Europe and other parts of Asia. That virtually came to a standstill. And even though demand in China grew significantly in 2020 uh, and 2021, it's not completely offset the impact of that lost tourism. That was Switha uh, joining us from
0: GAM. Um, you know, but... Uh, I find the China question, and you can really broaden this out to like any asset class, to be very confusing because we're all also looking at the idea that China is going to reopen in the same way that the U.S. and the West did, even if it's choppy. That they're going to spend a ton of money buying stuff. Do we know for sure that that's going to be true? I mean, Suiita says it doesn't really matter because Chinese consumers just buy differently for different reasons than U.S. consumers. But still, I'm puzzled.
1: And they don't have—they didn't have the same welfare supports. During lockdown, as, true, true, as true. many Western consumers did, one of the big things and one of the most confusing things about, I think, the the, uh, the current picture in the United States is just how much money consumers still have in their pockets to spend, which seems to be supporting the economy at a time when you wouldn't expect it uh, to, to be doing as well as it is. So I think that's going to be one of the fascinating narratives as well. And, and just trying I think, uh, understand what impact this is going to have in Europe as well. People have often compared and contrasted LVMH and Apple, and I think I think that kind of that luxury story could be could be really interesting for Europe going mm-hmm. forward. Europe's never had that tech story but the luxury yes. story is now there. Well, I Arnault know is now the richest man on earth.
0: I was just going to say that. Like that to me perfectly encapsulates the LVMH versus Tesla thing. And I appreciate that Elon Musk is not just Tesla because of the whole Twitter thing and there's a reason why he lost a bunch of money. Yada yada. Okay, I get that. But still, just like moving the throne from a Tesla to LVMH I think says a lot. And many equity strategists think that the value trade within Europe has a lot more legs that this could be the year. I mean, I've been hearing this for a while, guy, but they say that this yep. could Maybe be the year. It'd be a very um, different-looking
1: throne, wouldn't it, LVMH and, and Tesla? It would be
0: so much—well, Teslas are pretty fancy. I would totally opt for the LVMH throne.
1: Exactly. Shocker. <laughs> I know.
0: Um, okay, coming up, we're going to talk more about what the Fed did yesterday and had a position in the market. Taking a look at those two years, Ira Jersey will be joining us. This is Bloomberg.
3: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. You are listening to The Cable. on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So we're just almost 24 hours from the event from yesterday. Fed chair Jay Powell, hiking 50 basis points, still sounding really hawkish. Sounding hawkish. The statement read hawkish. The outlook was hawkish. And yet the markets behaved in an odd way. You really didn't see that much hawkish reaction within the bond market, within the equity market, or within the currency market. Now, today, the two-year yield is up by about three basis points. The 10-year yield is down four basis points. Okay, is it the Fed? Is it the ECB? What do we make of this? Who's to talk to us? Ira Jersey. He's Bloomberg Intelligence Chief U.S. uh, Rates Strategist Ira. What is the curve responding to today?
8: Yeah, so today it's really a combination of both yesterday's Fed, but in particular the ECB this morning. I mean, if you look at what's going on in the European bond market, you have a very significant sell-off. You look at German uh, German bonds today, and you have 10-year German bonds selling off 15-ish basis points. Um, the front end even more, right? Two-year yields up 24 basis points or so. The last time I looked, um, which was a couple of minutes ago now, so it may have moved. Um, so, so definitely the hawkishness out of the ECB is affecting the U.S. market right now, particularly that front end. The back end, you know, is more I think domestic. It's basically the idea that if central banks are going to be hawkish now, that means they're going to have to be more dovish later, and so that's why you get this. Uh, you know, I, w- you know, we kind of you can't call it bull or bear flattening anymore, right? Because yeah. it's bull and bear flattening at the same time.
5: <laughs> what
0: he sounded really excited when he said that, by the way. He did. He did. Yeah.
1: Um, let, th- th- Ira, how how does this work its way through now? The 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 Bunds in particular have been asleep at the wheel, I think, in terms of recognising the risk. Is the treasury market making the same mistake as well? I, the 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 central banks have sounded the fed maybe a little bit less so the ecb maybe a little bit also have sounded very hawkish over the last last 24 hours and and i they are clearly trying to communicate to the message that they that, to the market that you are underpricing the risk of what we want to do next
8: yeah i think there's a little bit of that and and certainly central banks want to see higher interest rates because they want to make sure that they can try to get inflation under control i i think the The issue that both markets and the central bank have, and and the the markets in particular right now, are saying, look, over the last 35 years, since 1987, we've been trained that when either the market crashes significantly or we get a higher unemployment rate, that we know the Fed's going to cut. And the, the problem is, is that it hasn't gotten through the uh, the market's vernacular yet that that put it doesn't exist anymore mm-hmm. or that it's as I described it it's just further out of the money you need to see a much deeper economic yep. slowdown or much deeper uh, market distress in order for central banks to, to think about cutting. Um, and but but I think it's going to take actions right I think mm-hmm. at this point the feds the, the market's not going to believe central banks until they actually take action or in the case of the Fed, don't take action once they reach the peak in yields.
0: So, what do you think that's going to look like in terms of, say, the unemployment rate? Like, I know they forecasted 4.6%, but like, what's the pain point where we're going to start to believe them?
8: Yeah, something above five, right? So, I okay. think, I think like it really, goes
0: above five, they don't act. Yeah.
8: So, so you know, they, there's a lot of debate about what the natural, you know, non accelerating rate of un, of inflation of unemployment is and, and where Otherwise, those numbers NARU? are. Nehru? Nehru, right. And <laughs> and whether or not the, uh, um, you know, how how will 4.6% unemployment, What how will that affect wage growth and wages? And in the U.S. in particular, you know, wages are, are non-trivial, and you, you did hear Jay Powell talk about this, we've been talking about it. I actually just read a piece that I wrote back in July saying that the Fed was going to have to go more because of what's going on in services, both wages and employment and prices. And the service sector wage growth in the U.S. is still running at, like, over 7% yeah. on, yep. a, on an annualized basis. You know, th- that means that services businesses are going to have to increase their, their prices in order to maintain margins. And th- that just means that that can be much stickier. And, and the thing about services, we have to remember, they're not things that you typically buy on credit. So, mm-hmm. it's not something that interest rate increases one way or the other are going to affect right you you buy a house That's you buy a car point. big ticket items on credit right.
0: like you have to lose your job to stop doing those things right mm-hmm.
8: yeah.
1: um so so how does this how does how does this play out do you think what what does the beginning of next next year look like today we've seen a kind of a bit of a rupture in in perceptions of the e c b do you think the Fed's going to look at the reaction that the ECB has got today and think I want some of that?
8: <laughs> <laughs> um, m- maybe a little, but but keep in mind is that throughout most of this cycle, the Fed has been about six months in front of the ECB, and and even yeah. at some level, the the Bank of England as well. So 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 I think you know the, the Fed is. The the challenge that that Powell and the rest of the Fed members have had over the last couple of months is how do we communicate the fact that we're going to be stopping our interest rate hikes at some point in the foreseeable future, and at the same time, we're not going to be quick to ease. They've said it. The market doesn't believe it, right? And And that's the challenge that I think they continue to have. So, I think Jay Powell just has to say, like, look, look at the summary of economic projections, look at the dot plot. We think at the end of next year, keep in mind, this is not the average of the year. This is not, we're going to hike to five and a quarter and then cut. This is saying, we think at the end of next year, we're going to be at 5.1%. It's really five and a quarter on the upper bound. Mm -hmm. But 5.1% on the Fed funds rate at the end of 2023. And he has to really... Pound that and 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 keep saying it and keep saying it. And what that means is, it's it's not so much that we'll necessarily see a significant um, re, uh, re steepening of the yield curve, mm-hmm. right? The yield curve, I think, for all of next year or almost all of next year, is going to remain inverted, but it might eventually remain less inverted because as the Fed keeps their the rate at five point one percent, we're going to price for even deeper cuts in twenty twenty four. So it's it's kind of this odd dynamic that at the beginning of the year, Guy, to mm-hmm. your question. Beginning of the year, I think we continue to we continue to, to flatten the yield curve. We continue to get the twos tens curve to about negative one hundred basis points, and then at that point, maybe we start to think about whether or not we want to get into steepening positions.
0: <clears throat> so you have a model that shows like his actual words during a press conference.
1: Alex is very but excited. I'm by so this. I,
0: he's like, I've had this for a while, but are you going to have to adapt it now to like silence or when he <laughs> shuffles papers or like when he clears his throat? I mean, is that what we're really into right now?
8: Well, we, you know, we always look at nuance and and. Uh, at the Brookings Institution, people told me that like the tone of what he said and the way he said some of oh the words God. sounded very dovish. The fact that he was talking about bike rides. When he was asked about bike rides, he didn't say it. It, it was a question. It's crazy. But uh, it was crazy. And and But nonetheless, yeah, but, like that model, that NLP model that we had, showed that he was dovish then. And he, yesterday, interestingly, it actually didn't show that he was more hawkish. It showed he was exactly the same as last month.
0: Interesting. Ira, great stuff. Really appreciate Ira Jersey of Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, okay, that wraps it up. Guy, it was such a pleasure to have you back on the show this week. <laughs> um, I, I'm serious. Um, all right, uh, we will be here tomorrow again, or I will be. Uh, you've been listening to The Cable. Have a good night. This is Bloomberg.